Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure to to talk about one of my favourite things in the world, which is our Encounter Internship Program. Because... Because it changes lives. And every single year, every six months, we open it up. We do a start of the year intake. We do a mid-year intake. And for anybody who just wants to be supercharged in their faith, who for a year want to come and give aside a day and just be poured into and grow and be challenged and be developed as a follower of Jesus. And every a couple of times a year, we give our interns the opportunity to, to share and to practice preaching and to practice their gifts and to test them. And it is so important and it's so wonderful. And many of you are here because of that exact reason. And so I am so excited. Our first preacher for this morning, she is a mighty woman of faith. She is a, a, a ball of fire, this woman. And every time I spend time with her, I am encouraged, I am inspired, I am lifted up by the love she has for Jesus. So won't you stand with me and make welcome Adelaide Cooper as she comes to bring the Word of God this morning. Mike, oh my gosh, what an introduction, oh wow, I feel like I don't even need to introduce myself after that, you guys can take a seat, hello, hello, welcome to church, um, as you've heard, my name is Adelaide and I am just one of the beloved interns here at Encounter and it is just an honour and a privilege to bring, be bringing the Word of God this morning, so at the risk of sounding too much like a pastor, why don't you turn to your neighbour and say hello, give him a little COVID safe high five just while I set up. All right, document is up. I'm ready to go. Hello, everybody. How are we going this morning? That is the enthusiasm I want, but I know Encounter Church. You guys can do better. How are we going? All the way at the back. How are we going? Yes! This is what we want. Okay, so I want you guys to be really verbal. I love when there's like active engagement. So be verbal, guys, when I'm preaching. All right. (laughs) So... Uh, This morning, it is my privilege to be bringing the Word of God to you, and um, I am just so grateful for all the opportunities that internship has given me, and more so, I'm just thankful for Mike and Jenny, and I know they're probably like, oh, don't do this, but I'm going to do this. (laughs) Thank you so much for investing in me, and Mike, 10 10 months ago, sending me that message saying, hey, Adelaide, love you to consider doing internship, because that message has quite literally changed my life, so thank you. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Can we just honour Mike and Jenny for their amazing leadership, because... I am so grateful to both of you for calling out life in me and seeing potential in me that I couldn't see, so thank you. However, today my sermon is not on Mike and Jenny as much as I would love that and as much as I'm sure they would love that. My sermon is not actually on Mike and Jenny. So you're probably aware that the theme that each of us interns are going to be preaching on is heroes of the faith. And if you're not aware, now you are. Heroes of the faith. I heard that that was our theme and I was like, yes, this is awesome. I can preach on Encounter Church. Pretty sappy, I know. But you guys are the real heroes of the faith to me. Oh, I know. Time to swoon. Oh. (laughs) However, Mike made it that I had to do someone from the Bible. So sadly, spoiler alert, you guys aren't from the Bible. So I cannot preach on you guys as much as I would love that. Today, though, I'm going to be preaching on someone from the New Testament. 
It's not Jesus. Anyone want to take a wild guess as to who it could be? I heard like five different responses. Just call it out. Paul? I knew someone would instantly go Paul. It's not Paul. What was that? Yes, Alex. She gets gold stars. Yes, gold star to Alex for getting that. Um, Josh, can we get that picture up there? This is a beautiful picture of John the Baptist. And I don't know if you can quite see, but there's a um, figure in the background, and that is Jesus. Uh, and so, John, um, he was a prophet in the New Testament, and he preaches a message of repentance through baptism. Um, and so much of his ministry is set in the Judean wilderness. And in my research on John the Baptist in preparing for this sermon, I found out some pretty groundbreaking stuff, and I had a big revelation on John the Baptist. You want to hear it, guys? John the Baptist, pausing for dramatic effect, John the Baptist, he baptised people. Whoa, this is, yeah, yeah, this is groundbreaking stuff. If I wasn't scared of breaking this microphone, I would have done a mic drop. John the Baptist, he baptised people. Whoa. Uh, so the Bible says that his clothes, uh, they were made from camel hair and that he ate locusts and honey. So this is some pretty Bear girls type stuff from my man, John. But extreme camping and camel hair aside, the thing that really defines John the Baptist's life and his character is his ability to point to Jesus above all else. The thing that really defines John the Baptist's character is his Christ-centred humility, where John's deepest desire is to have people devote their lives and attention to Jesus rather than himself. So, with that being said, why don't we get into some scripture? Woo! Because, let's be real, the living word of God is going to be able to teach you better than I can. Amen? <laughs> so, we're reading from Matthew 3, verse 11. Why don't you guys flick that in your Bibles with me? Just a little bit of context as to what is happening in this chapter while you're flicking there. Uh, John, he is preaching to his devoted followers who have travelled from all over Judea to be baptised by John. So, John, this is what he says to his devoted followers. Can we get that verse up? Oh, thanks, man. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the word of the Lord. Just quickly, I've always wanted to be on that side of the call and response. That was great. <laughs> it's such a rush. I get why you do it. <laughs> It's all right. It's all right. Mike said that I was allowed to have a dig at him, so I'm going to take the opportunity. <laughs> so John here, spoiler alert, the person that he is uh, referencing in this verse is Jesus. Whoa, another big revelation from Adelaide. So John here, he says that he's not worthy to carry Jesus's sandals. So a little bit of context as to what John means by that. During this time, they didn't really have nicely paved roads, right? They didn't have bitumen roads or nicely paved sidewalks. It was just plain old dirt roads. That's all they had. The technology wasn't quite there during this time. And so um, they also didn't have cars, right? So anyone want to take a wild guess as to what the main form of transportation is during this time? Plates? Planes. Oh, no, it's not planes. Good. Good guess, I guess. <laughs> what was that, Taryn? 
you cheated because you've heard me say the sermon before. But yes, it was animals. Animals is the main form of transportation. And guys, I don't know how to say this tactfully, but animals poo a lot. They just poo a lot. It's, it's a fact of nature, right? I don't know how to say that tactfully. So you can just imagine during this time, right? The ground, it is muddy during wet seasons. It is dusty during dry seasons and just generally pooey in all seasons. I don't know if pooey is a word, but I'm going to rock it for the sake of this sermon. <laughs> The ground is just gross during this time. To make it worse, the only form of footwear they had were sandals. Like if I say Jesus sandals, what's the image that instantly pops to your head? It's that, like Birkenstocks, right? Not great protective footwear when you're dealing with mud and poo and poo and mud and all this gunk, right? Not great protective footwear. So naturally, just in the context of this time, people's feet had a stigma for being the most disgusting body part, right? So because of this, having anything to do with your sandals, so untying them, carrying them, as John says in the verse, um, cleaning them, it was a job left for a lowly servant that you despised the most. So John, taking into consideration all that context, John here is saying, I am not worthy to go near Jesus' most disgusting body part and do the lowest job for him. John really in this verse is saying, I am lower than a common house slave. Whoa, yes, wow. But not just that. See, John, he is doing this publicly, but not just that. He's doing this in front of his devoted followers who have travelled from all over the region of Judea to be baptised by John. And see, he's not doing this without intention, right? John is intentionally lowering himself so that Jesus may be elevated. And so this is also not John necessarily having a low self-esteem. I know when I first read this passage, I was like, whoa, my man, John, he is dealing with some self-esteem issues. But not really. John actually is just hyper aware of his role in this dynamic. And John is just aware that compared to the literal saviour of the world, the most perfect man to ever walk the earth, He is lower than a common house slave. John is just super aware of his role in this dynamic. And so you might ask, well, what is his role in this dynamic? John says it himself in the verse. Can we get that one back up there? What's the first words of this verse? I baptise with water for repentance. So John's role is to baptise with water for repentance. And naturally, I pointed that out and you go, oh, yes, Adelaide, awesome. I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what water for repentance means, right? You go, clear as mud, right? (laughs) No, naturally you're like, what does water for repentance mean? If you're anything like me, I looked at this and I'm like, water for repentance, what? (laughs) So, just to clarify it for you guys, uh, the Greek word for repent is metanoia. So everybody say metanoia. Turn to your partner and say metanoia. Good job. Yes, we are learning Greek here at Encounter Church. We're a bilingual church here. (laughs) So the Greek word for repent or repentance is metanoia. And so in essence, metanoia, it means to change one's mind or perspective. But more than that, metanoia has a very active meaning. And so it means uh, to have a fundamental change of direction, right? So metanoia, it's, it's a very active word. So it's as if to say, I am walking in one direction. I am heading in one direction. But then I'm stopped. And I have this metanoia experience of turning away from that direction and going in a completely different direction. 
So John here, he is calling for a fundamental change and transformation of who we are as a whole. And so this is what I love about internship. Internship has been a real-life metanoia experience for me. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware, but 10 months ago, the trajectory of my faith was not very good. I'll just be real with you. I was looking like I was heading in the direction of a prodigal. I was, was not in, engaged in my faith, not engaged in the church, right? Heading in a not great direction. But exactly that, exactly during that time, Mike sends me a message and says, Hadlade, love you to consider doing internship. And Mike isn't aware, but when he sent me that message, I was like, hang on, there's a mistake. Has he realised who he's just sent this message to? Even though it said Adelaide in the message, I was like, oh, okay, maybe it was intentional. But when he sent me that message, I was like, why on earth would Mike want to invest in someone like me who's heading in this pretty terrible direction? But Mike knew that my direction was not my destination, right? And Mike saw potential in me that I couldn't see it myself. And Mike said, you know what? I want that girl to go through a real-life metanoia experience where she was heading in this direction but I'm going to invest in her. I'm going to call life out of her. And now I'm in a 180 direction, guys. <laughs> clearly, clearly I'm in a 180 direction because I'm preaching in front of you. <laughs> Internship is a real life metanoia experience. Quote me on that, Mike. <laughs> so the way that water and repentance are linked here is that the act of baptism It's a physical symbol for a deeper spiritual reality. Let me say that again. Baptism is a physical symbol for a deeper spiritual reality. So what I mean by that gobbledygook is that the act of going under the water in baptism, it symbolizes this metaphorical laying down of your old patterns and your old ways of life, right? And the act of coming back up out of the water, it's as if to say I'm going through a metanoia experience of turning away from that, coming up transformed, heading in a new direction, right? And this is why our baptisms last week were so powerful. They were amazing, guys. We had amazing baptisms, six people getting baptised. Jeremy was one of them and he decided in the service to get baptised. Like, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. But the reason, I don't just say that to hype up baptisms as as good as they are. I say that because those six people are declaring I am a new creation in Christ. That's the power of baptism. See, John, uh, his water for repentance, it points to a deeper spiritual need that we all have, which is forgiveness from sins. But more than that, a deeper spiritual need for transformation of who we are as a whole. And see, John, while proclaiming this message, he also openly recognises, I'm not the one who can fulfil those needs. But he doesn't get caught up in that. See, John, he goes on to say in this verse, there is one who is coming who can fulfil those needs. There is one who is coming who is more powerful than I. There is one who is coming who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire and allow you to live a transformed new life. And this one is not me, but Jesus. And this is what John does. He humbly recognises that it is not his role to transform and redeem and restore people, but rather John humbly recognises that it's his role to simply but passionately, note that, simply but passionately point to the one who can. Jesus. 
And friends, if you're a Christian in this place, is that not our job too? To simply but passionately point to the one who will allow people to live a transformed life. Jesus. See, friends, um, we are just like John. Maybe we're not exactly like John because I don't know the last time you wore camel's hair or like ate locusts, right? (laughs) But in one sense, we are just like John. We're not enough on our own. And you might be sitting there going, how dare you tell me I'm not enough on my own? Don't get disheartened because this is the best news of all. And let me tell you why it's the best news of all. It means the burden is removed. It means we are not the saviour of our friends and family and we are not even the saviour of ourselves. It means that the pressure is taken off of our shoulders and placed onto the shoulders of him who is perfect. See, it's not our job to save people, guys, but it is our job, just like John, to simply but passionately point to the one who can. And maybe you're not a Christian in this place and you're thinking, well, Adelaide, this sermon's been great. Thanks. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, it's been great, Adelaide, but it doesn't really apply to me. You're talking about these spiritual needs and I don't even believe in Jesus. And you're talking about spiritual needs and I don't think I have any. And let me tell you, if you're sitting there thinking that, I get it. I completely get it. And I'm not saying that to coin up some false empathy. I actually get it. Four years ago, I was an atheist. So I get it. If you are sitting there going, spiritual needs, meh. Spiritual needs, spiritual needs, per. I get it, if that's what you're thinking. But let me ask, have you ever wondered what happens to you after you die? Have you ever wondered what comes after life, right? Because if, if life, if, my, if I, after life, I'm dying into nothingness, right? Just blackness, not even blackness, just nothingness. If I'm really dying into nothingness, then is my life futile? What is the point of my life? Because if I'm dying into nothingness, then everything I've ever stood for, everything I've ever achieved, every person I've ever loved is just going to fade away and be forgotten eventually. That's heavy existentialism. But let me tell you, whether you acknowledge it or not, that's a spiritual kind of questioning. And it points to a deeper spiritual need inside that we all have. To know there's more to life than this. And let me tell you, if you've been asking those kinds of questions, been thinking those kinds of thoughts, let me tell you there is more to life than this. There is. And Jesus is the one who gives me the certainty to be able to proclaim that to you today. Let me say that again because I don't think you quite got the weight of my words. Jesus is the one who gives me, an atheist four years ago, the certainty to be able to say there is more to life than this. See, Jesus... John pointed to Jesus so passionately because he knew that Jesus was actually the one these people had come for. Sure, in one sense, they'd come to John to be baptised, right? But the crowd's hunger and desire for John's baptism, it pointed to a deeper hunger and desire, a deeper need for intimacy with God. And John knew that it was Jesus Christ alone who could fulfil that need and satisfy that hunger. And this, friends, this is the real lesson that we can learn from John and the real reason he is a hero of the faith in everything. Above all else, John passionately points to Jesus because John knew that it was Jesus Christ alone who could allow you to live a transformed life. 
that it was Jesus Christ alone who could forgive sins, that it was Jesus Christ alone who could allow for salvation, that it was Jesus Christ alone who could allow for intimacy with God the Father. And because of this, because of John's passionate pointing, he makes us aware of our own deeper need our own personal need for each of these things in which Jesus Christ comes as the only way they will ever truly be fulfilled because he already has. So good. Amazing, amazing work, Ed. John the Baptist pointing to the deeper need we have for transformation in Jesus is powerful. It's powerful. Hey, for our, our second preacher this morning is, is just a woman of great wisdom and faith and conviction. And I just find her one of the most thoughtful learners I've ever come across. Somebody who absorbs information and processes it and understands it and then points back to Jesus exactly like John the Baptist and gives glory to God. So I just wonder if you could just make her so welcome. Taylor Pribbenow, she comes to preach the word. Come on. Thank you so much. Gosh, what an introduction. Thank you, Mike. Hello. How is everybody? So good to see you here today. I'd just like to say a really big thank you to everyone who's come here to support me as well. It's a blessing to just see so many people that I really love in one room together. So thank you so much. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Taylor. You may have seen me around here singing, uh, playing keys, helping out with kids' ministry, or maybe just around the place, ready to greet you with a hopefully friendly smile. If not, my apologies, I was still on my way towards the free coffee. (laughs) Anyway, that is enough about me. Um, Recently, I've been really lucky to acquire some new neighbours. Um, which has been a real blessing to me. So Jeremy and Josh, our wonderful worship leader this morning, um, (laughs) recently moved in next door to me. Um, I've noticed a strange pattern at their place. Things seem to be multiplying. (laughs) Plants, bottles of wine, varieties of tea. Um, In fact, I bought them a plant, and the next time I went over, they had 20. (laughs) It's like Jesus with the loaves and the fishes. It just just keeps coming. Um, Anyway, I thought Josh and Jeremy could spare a plant or two, so I asked if I could borrow one this morning. Thank you, Jeremy. Can anyone tell me what this plant is called? The mother-in-law's tongue. That is right. Now, I'm sorry, Jeremy, but every time I see this plant, I can't help but wonder who had some kind of problem with their (laughs) mother-in-law. I mean, look at the bite on that tongue. When it comes to passive-aggressive ways to make a dig at someone, naming a plant after them has to be up there. (laughs) Uh, um, Yes, so, the Bible is actually full of stories of really messy families and relationships. Um, But the story I'm here to tell you about today is a very different in-law kind of relationship, defined not by conflict, but by heartfelt love and loyalty. And I'm sure all of you with in-laws out there can can very much relate. (laughs) The book actually starts with a tragedy. So I'm talking about the book of Ruth. Famine strikes Israel, and Elimelech and his wife Naomi leave Israel and move with their two sons to the land of Moab. 
In Moab, Elimelech dies, followed by his two sons, leaving Naomi alone, a widow. But she's also got her two widowed daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Not happy times for Mrs. Elimelech. After 10 long, hard years in Moab, Naomi has had it. She decides to return back to Israel, taking with her her two widowed daughters-in-law. So three widows set off down the road, but a couple of kilometres along the way, Naomi stops, pauses, turns to her daughters-in-law. Orpah, Ruth, what are you doing? What are you doing following an old woman like me? You're still young, attractive. There's still hope for you. Go back to your homes. Go back to your families. You know, put some makeup on, spruce up your profile picture, you know. <laughs> You'll have new husbands, plenty of babies in no time. <laughs> you shouldn't worry about an old woman like me. Now, Ruth and Orpah love Naomi. But eventually, Orpah returns to her mother and father's home back in Moab. Ruth, however, it tells us, clung to Naomi. Naomi tells her again, go back to your home, go back to your people, follow your sister-in-law. She knows what's good for her. But Ruth is dead set. She won't have any of it. So I'm just going to turn to Ruth chapter 2 and read out Ruth's declaration. Actually, I think it's chapter 1. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Wow. What a declaration of loyalty. Now, when it comes to my own aspirations, I can't say that being a widow is up there. <laughs> being an ancient widow in a male-dominated world, that would have been pretty rough. But an ancient, childless, foreign widow, living with her barren, poverty-stricken, widowed mother-in-law, Ruth certainly takes the cake on that one. This could easily be a sermon on the importance of family and Ruth's incredible loyalty. However, Ruth's declaration suggests loyalty to more than just Naomi. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth loved Naomi, but more than that, she saw something in Naomi. Naomi's life and faith were a powerful witness to the God that she served. Ruth was drawn to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And so while she had nothing to gain and everything to lose, Ruth follows Naomi. In Israel, Ruth and Naomi find themselves with nothing. The story tells us that Ruth went out to the fields to glean or pick up leftover grain from the harvest, basically the equivalent of ancient Centrelink. <laughs> Ruth works hard and soon she is noticed. Ruth finds herself in the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz was known for his kindness and generosity. Boaz has to tell his men not to lay a hand on Ruth, just highlighting how vulnerable a position she was otherwise in. 
Ruth, however, is safe with him. A strange thing about the book of Ruth is its failure to actually mention God in the story. The characters talk about him, but his presence seems strangely absent as Ruth goes about her everyday business of gathering grain to survive. It's hard manual labour. She could be harmed physically or taken advantage of, and yet Ruth goes out every day to glean. Ruth is incredibly courageous, alone in a foreign land, providing for herself and her ageing mother-in-law. Ruth is the definition of a strong, independent woman who takes matters into her own hands. (laughs) However, in all of this, Ruth is truly not alone. While God is not mentioned explicitly, Ruth coincidentally ends up in the field of Boaz. And Boaz, coincidentally, just happens to be a close relative. God is at work behind the scenes. This time in Israel's history was a dark one. People were not living according to God's ways. But still, God is present. In chapter 2, we catch a glimpse of God's heart. The story tells us that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. So what does that mean? The kinsman redeemer was an Old Testament provision in the law which stated that when a family member died or fell into poverty, a close relative was obliged to redeem him and provide for any living members of his family. In this case, Ruth and Naomi. You need to catch this. Ruth was not alone because God's provision was following her. He may have been behind the scenes, but the Redeemer God was well and truly working. This mechanism of redemption was woven into the very fabric of Israelite law and society, showing us God's heart for the poor and needy. So, like all good researchers, I googled the word redemption. The act of gaining or regaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. The Redeemer is one who pays what we could never pay. So then what does the kinsman part mean? Well, another translation calls it a close relative. So the kinsman Redeemer has to be close and able to pay what we cannot pay. The most beautiful thing about the story of Ruth is how we see God at work behind the scenes. God saves and redeems Ruth and her family. Ruth and Boaz are married and a poverty-stricken foreign widow becomes part of a family. But not just any family. Ruth bears a child and becomes the great-grandmother to King David, Israel's greatest king. Now, this is the real rags-to-riches Cinderella story we've all been wanting to hear. However, God still does not stop there. The story of Ruth starts with a death, but it ends with new life, a baby born for you and me. See, the town where Ruth, Naomi and Boaz lived was Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, Ruth gave birth to Obed. And we know that 30 generations later, in that same town, yes, the Israelites really love their genealogies, another baby was born. 
we catch a glimpse of God's heart in his faithfulness to Ruth. We catch a glimpse of his goodness that he would provide for and redeem her. But in this baby, this child, a greater miracle unfolds. In this baby, the fullness of God's heart is revealed. Jesus, friends, Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. The heart of God wrapped in human flesh come close. Now, I don't have children of my own, but my beautiful friend Lisa does. She has three precious little boys. They're here this morning. And she said to me of those little boys, it's like my heart lives on the outside now. Jesus, the Son of God, God's heart, come to live on the outside. He was known by the name Emmanuel, a God with us. In John chapter 1, the message translation puts it this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. Pretty great next door (laughs) neighbours. God became human, close kin to you and me. And his heart is to redeem. We watch the heart of God for humanity as Jesus walks towards the cross, willing to pay with his life the debt that we could never pay. But God does not stop there. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. The power of God's love could not be contained, not by death, not by suffering, and not by anything that we could do. Our kinsman redeemer paid what we could never pay. And just as Ruth was adopted into a new family, new life is on offer to you and me. Through the power of Jesus' resurrection, we have access to a life source beyond ourselves. The presence of Jesus comes to dwell with us. The heart of God comes alive in us. And as we trust in this power, something begins to change. We find we come alive. Jesus doesn't take us from bad to good. He takes us from dead to alive. (laughs) This new life is not about a list of shoulds and should nots. It is about drawing near to the very heart of God. In her time of desperate need, Ruth makes an incredible statement of faith. What I need isn't a home. It isn't financial provision. I don't need a new husband. I don't need to return to my family. What I need isn't a great life. It's the very source of life. Ruth stepped out in faith and God stepped in with power and provision. So I wonder, where do you find yourself today? What does it mean for you to say, God is enough for me? Perhaps you find yourself in the fields like Ruth. You're living by faith, but as you go about your everyday life, you're struggling to see God at work behind the scenes. Perhaps if you're honest, sometimes you wonder, God, are you holding out on me? How could God be enough, even here? Or maybe you're still stuck back in Moab, yet to take the leap. Maybe all this talk about God sounds great, but in your heart there's a wrestle. 
How could God be enough? Taylor, you don't know my circumstances, my history, my relationship status, my financial position, my family life. You don't know my sin. And you're right. I don't. But God does. He sees. Ruth gave up everything as she pursued the God of Naomi. My question is, why? What could inspire such incredible faith? Only a glimpse of the one whose faithfulness is greater still. Because Ruth followed the God of Naomi, the God who comes close and the God who redeems. And this is the heart of God for you and me. Just turn to Romans 8 up on the screen. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Jesus, the heart of God, come to live on the outside, to dwell with you and me. So I just want to pray, Jesus, would you move our hearts? Would you give us a glimpse of your glory so that we, might, like Ruth, might be drawn nearer to your presence? Would you help us to declare with our hearts and with our lives, God is enough for me? May we be able to say, along with Ruth, Jesus, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And you will be my God. With my life, I will follow. Because your love has captured me. Friends, what gave Ruth the strength to follow despite everything that she faced? I believe it was an encounter with the living God. As Ruth chose to draw near. I believe this would have been her heart. This God is enough for me. What he values, I will value. What he treasures, I will treasure. What matters to him will matter to, to, will matter to me. This God is enough for me. And if you, like Ruth, lean in, you'll begin to hear him speak. And the very first words that he says are, I value you. I treasure you. You matter to me. And in that, we find everything we could ever need. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.